Welcome to the Elk Talk Podcast with Randy Newberg and Corey Jacobson. Presented by the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation. The goal is what little you and I know about elk hunting, we share with people. I've got an elk building, it's like 120 yards away, what do I do? First off, the thought would never cross my mind when an elk being 120 yards away to call anybody <laughs> on a cell phone. <laughs> All elk. All the time. Only elk. Only elk. Well, it's us having conversations. So we usually go down some rabbit holes. But if you hunt with Corey Jacobson, you will find the landscape is full of rabbit holes. We're just going to make this up as we go. And you look at it like, oh, that's a target-rich environment. But if you're trying to single one out, a solo target there is much easier to go into than a, a big group. We record everything, so there's no BS and no lying, no faking it with us. <laughs> Did we hit the record I button? I forgot to hit the record <laughs> button. If you want to know something about elk hunting, this probably isn't a podcast to listen to. <laughs> Should we give them a list of all the other podcasts wow. where they might learn something? <laughs> The Elk Talk Podcast is brought to you by the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation, ensuring the future of elk, other wildlife, their habitat, and our hunting heritage. To become a member, go to rmef.org. And the podcast is also brought to you by OnX Maps. And with OnX Maps, you can know where you stand with the most accurate hunting GPS tech on the market with land ownership maps that work offline. Go to onxmaps.com and use promo code ELKTALK and you're going to save 20% when you sign up for an app membership at onxmaps.com. The podcast is also brought to you by Gerber. Uh, go to gerbergear.com and learn about the knives, the vital, the big game vital, the Gator Premium, all the things that we use when we're out in the woods and not just knives, but also some really cool multi-tools that they have. We're also proud to partner with Sitka Gear. And if you go to sitkagear.com, you'll see their full line of clothing. And their tagline is turning clothing into gear. And they are doing that through advanced technology that allows you to stay in the field longer, hunt harder, and stay safer. The Elk Talk podcast is also brought to you by GoHunt.com. Uh, go to GoHunt.com and sign up for the Insider. Um, the, the insider is changing how haunts and hunting information are found. No doubt about that. Use promo code ELKTALK, and when you do, when you sign up for the insider, you're going to get $50 of store credit, mad money, in their gear shop. And we are also brought to you by Rocky Mountain Hunting Calls. And Rocky Mountain Hunting Calls is the original designer and inventor of the pallet plate diaphragm that's completely changed the way elk calls are made and used. And to find out more and to order your elk calls, go to RockyMountainHuntingCalls.com or BuglingBull.com and use promo code ELKTALK and you're going to save 15% on all of your elk calls and elk call accessories. And with that, Corey... We are ready to get into it. Let's jump into it. Well, folks, you may be able to hear a little bit of echo here. I'm, I'm backstage trying to do this uh, to let you know what's going on. Uh, Corey and I are doing a live Q&A here at the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation's Elk Camp and Mountain Festival in Park City, Utah. And in about two minutes, we're going to walk out to the front of the stage and we're going to have 
the audience asking us questions and they've got <laughs> they got this weird thing it's like an orange box that is has the microphone in it and you just throw it to the next person who's going to ask a question and uh the, i have no idea what the audience will have for questions but if it sounds a little echoey or it sounds like we're in a big space it is because we're up on a stage in this big uh open pavilion and we'll read back the questions from each of the people and hopefully That'll let you know what we are answering. Uh, nothing worse than somebody answering a question and you don't even know what the question is. And the cool part is everybody who is here and asks a question, they get uh, uh, an out call from Rocky Mountain Hunting Calls and they get a Gerber Vital Knife from Gerber. So that usually encourages a few people to step up and and ask the question. Uh, <laughs> we have no idea where these ones are going to go. We did the one the other day, yesterday, and that one got into a little bit of tangential stuff. I, I'm like, oh, this is an elk hunting podcast. We don't, we don't need to talk about wolves and marriage and uh, everything else, but uh, it gives you a little bit of feel of what the audience is thinking anyhow. So if the sound of this one's a little different than normal, uh, that's why. And when I walk around the, cur- the curtain here uh, and hear hit the button it'll click both Corey and i'll be on the podcast then and we'll see how it goes but really appreciate all of you listening and hopefully next year if rmef has this out camp and mountain festival down here in park city again hopefully some more of you can be down here for it here we go audio check check Corey's gonna sing besides and being Andy's able- gonna play all right <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, you don't want me to sing or play. I can't even play my radio on my truck. When I sing on the road, my camera crew rolls the windows down so that they don't have to hear me. All they hear is the wind noise going. So, but are we ready to do this? I'm ready. You guys right. ready? Does anybody have a question? So here, here's how it's going to work. So this little orange box up here. You have to come. The first person with a question comes and picks that box up, and then the second person needs to walk over and grab the box, or somehow we exchange the box. It says catch box. I'm guessing they can throw it. Uh, you can. We saw that yesterday. And then uh, if you have a question, we'll do our best to give you a truthful answer. Odd that we're going to make it up. Uh, but you have, we have Gerber knives here for anyone who asks. And then we've got Rocky Mountain hunting calls somewhere. Over here? Over here. So... Who's first? <laughs> he wants to do the what, What's your number? Show me your number. 575 595 577 uh, what do you actually need to do to be more aggressive? You know, we talk, talk a lot about aggressive calling, aggressive elk hunting tactics, but what does that really mean, right? So for me, you know, a lot of times elk don't come to you. And the, the key to getting an elk to come to your setup as you're calling is to get close to them. And so I get aggressive in pushing that envelope and getting as close to him as I can. So if I have an elk that answers me from 300 yards away and he's staying put, whether he has cows, whether he's in his bed, Whatever the reason is, if he's not coming to me and I want him to come to me, 
I've got to get a little closer. And depending on the terrain, sometimes it's wide open and you can't get any closer. And when you're hunting open terrain and trying to call elk, it can be tough because once they get to that point where they can see where the calls are coming from but can't see an elk, they're going to hang up and not come any closer. So terrain plays a big part in that aggression of, of getting close. Once I get as close as I can, and I like to get inside 150 yards, 100 yards is ideal, but anything inside 200 is going to be okay. 150 just seems to be that sweet spot. But if I can get inside 150 yards and set up, it completely changes how that elk's going to react to my calling. And then from there, when I talk about aggressive calling, all I'm doing is giving him a cow call. So I get set up, I give a cow call, that gets the bull to respond typically. And once he responds, I hammer him with a really aggressive challenge bugle. And all I'm saying to him is, I let out a cow call, the bull responds and says, hey, it's September, you're a cow, you sound like you're by yourself, you wanna come hang out with me, you know, the bull's hitting on the cow there. And then all of a sudden, this other bull gets very aggressive and says, no, she's taken, you don't talk to my cow. And that initiates that challenge sequence and starts the fight. And typically, if you're that close, that bull's gonna react in the same way, very aggressive, wanting to come and fight. If you start off the other way and you start off with a bugle right there from the get-go and let that bull respond, he's gonna then challenge you and hold his ground and make you come to him. So I always like to make sure I start with the cow call, then aggressively hit him once he responds to that. So I'm always getting in the last word, challenging him to a fight. So does that answer your question? Excellent. And I've got nothing to add that would be of value. <laughs> okay, so the question is, you just recently moved from Wyoming to Utah. Utah opens this year, I believe, August 17th, is that right? And then closes September 13th. So what are the tactics for calling early season like that? I guess for me, if, uh, if I had that hunt and I had the opportunity to maybe hunt a little bit of each week throughout the season, maybe you're hunting weekends and then you can take one week to hunt, if calling was my go-to, I, I wanted to call in an elk, I would hunt that last week for sure. Uh, through probably Labor Day weekend, I'd concentrate mostly on either water or spotting and stocking. The bulls are still going to be, uh, the big bulls by the time season opens are probably going to be split off individually. They're not going to be in the bachelor groups anymore. Uh, some of the smaller bulls might still be, but those big bulls are going to be by themselves. They're going to be get, you know, getting hard antlered, uh, raking the, the trees in their staging area. If you can see them, if you're in an area where you can glass in the morning and see where they're going to bed, spotting and stalking can be effective. But when it's hot like that, they're gonna be hitting water. So if you can find a good water source and if you're patient enough to wait on water, it can be really effective, especially for those bigger bulls. Uh, if calling's your thing, you can still get into some calling early like that, but it's gonna be mostly location type things. It's not gonna be nearly as aggressive. You're gonna have a harder time calling a bull in there will still be that one in a hundred bull that gets fired up and aggressive that you can call in on August 20th. And uh, if you can find him, that's great, but you're gonna have to cover a lot of country and a lot of miles to find him. So outside that, once you get into that last week of season, like the fifth through the 13th, that's my favorite time to call. And the reason why is the bulls are then establishing their harems. They're very aggressive, they're very competitive, and the bigger bulls usually don't have the cows yet, so you can still call in those bigger bulls. From the 13th on, it can be more difficult to call in those big bulls. But I would definitely, you know, don't, don't uh, feel bad that the season's too early. It's just gonna concentrate a lot of calling into that last week of season. So the question is, uh, or the comment, uh, I'm an impatient hunter and I spook a lot of elk. <laughs> What's the strategy to slow yourself down? Uh, how old are you? Oh. 
I'm 54 and I'm kind of slowed down by this time. <laughs> That's <laughs> why Father I gave you Time the has slowed me down. Uh, but I, I guess for me, I find terrain or places or season types that force me to slow down. Uh, I do a lot of glassing um, and I get a lot of comments. People say, well, I hunt dark timber and, and that's great. Uh, there are some elk in dark timber, but if you think about what elk need, especially in a sanctuary period, like the post rut or the late season, are, are you rifle hunting or are you archery hunting? Both. Okay. I'm, I'm referring to mostly rifle hunting. Um, the elk that are in the dark timber can't stay there forever because there's just not enough food there. Uh, very, very low foods. The, the, so there will be elk in there, but the elk densities are far lower than probably what you're going to see in other parts of, of their terrain and habitat. So for me, I've forced myself to become more of a glasser than a walker, and I get the impatient part. I got a camera crew that has ants in their pants. They're like, how long are we going to sit here? <laughs> well, till we see an elk. And they're like, come on, let's go to the next ridge. Let's go to the next ridge. Well, there, there is a time for moving and moving and moving. And sometimes I will move in glass, move in glass, move in glass. Uh, but I just, it's a matter of discipline and forcing myself. And, and when I'm hunting those post rut and late season periods, I know that the elk are in very small areas. They've found their sanctuary, so they're not going to move around a lot. So I think about what a sanctuary consists of for an elk. It's got really tough approach, whether it's noisy, it's whatever. And then for him, it has really good escapes. So I know because of that, me just walking around and trying to cover ground, I'm gonna see, I'm gonna spook a lot of elk because of the places they select for sanctuary at that time of year, they select them for that purpose. So what I try to do is I just glass and glass, get to a new spot, glass and glass. and. Once I see them, then I strategically figure out how do I get within shooting distance. Okay. I have nothing to add to that because I'm impatient too, so I bump a lot of elk and that's, we just deal with it. He just needs to wait to get 79 like me. <laughs> you know, Corey will laugh about this. We did a podcast the other day with Larry D. Jones. And uh, uh, Corey, how old are you? 44. Okay. And I'm 54. And Corey said something about, you know, running up and down hills or something. I can't remember what it was, but I said, well, wait till you get to be 55. And Larry is 77 and he's over there <coughs> coughing. So I think, I, I, I think Randy made a comment about being 55 and being an old codger. Or there was something like that. And Larry kind of looked over at him like, you're calling yourself an old codger. And here I am at 77, still running up the mountains. So. I appreciate what you just said there. <laughs> okay, so his question to you, Corey, <laughs> is uh, I scout all summer long and it seems like after the first week of season, the elk are gone to some other part of the unit. Or maybe even before season starts. Okay. Okay, so I, I guess a couple things to keep in mind. When I'm scouting for elk, if I'm not focusing on a trophy bowl, like if I draw a, a trophy hunt or something, it might change a little bit, but 95% of the hunts I do are just over-the-counter public land type hunt. So I'm not focused on a specific bull. So my scouting focuses on cows. I want to find the cows because from about the time the cows have their calves, which, you know, that first week of June, so a month ago, they started having their calves. From that point until the rut, they typically don't move too much. There's no need for them to move. They're typically in an area where they have good cover to have their calves. There's plenty of feed. And that's typically going to be the rutting area where the rut initially takes place. Bulls are a lot different. Bulls will be higher up right now 
uh, in the summer months. And then when the rut starts kicking in, so right now they're in bachelor groups, just about that time frame you're talking, you know, August 5th to the 10th, somewhere in there, they're going to break up from the bachelor groups and they're going to go to what I call staging areas. So they're going to find these areas that are just tiny little patches where they have food, water, and cover, and they're going to wait there and get ready for the rut. And then a little bit before the rut, so September 5th to the 10th, somewhere in there, they're going to move again and they're going to go to the rutting areas where the cows are. And so there's a lot of transition there for those bulls. As you watch them from you know, June until August 1st, they're going to be right there in a, in a bachelor group. You're going to be like, yeah, there's 10 bulls right here. Everything's great. And then all of a sudden, you're not going to see them again for two weeks. They go to that staging area. They start rubbing trees. They're, uh, they're getting hard antlered, ready for the rut. And then they're going to move again from there. And they might go 15 miles sometimes in some units. Typically, it's only going to be two or three miles where they're going to go find the cows but sometimes they're gonna go a long way. So there's a lot of dynamic movement going on during that time. But for the most part, the cows, as long as they have cover and feed, shouldn't be moving too much. Now, once pressure starts getting in there, that can affect them. Typically archery though, they aren't going to move too much that middle of August timeframe. They might just move around the mountain to a North Face or to a, a little sanctuary where they still have food, but they usually aren't gonna transition a long ways at that point. I would just add to that, the, we break it down into five calendar periods of elk hunting. You got early season, which is anything before September 1st, pre-rut, which is like September 1st to the 8th or 10th. And then you got peak rut that really picks up sometime after September 10th. There's no time in the elk calendar when they change their behaviors as rapidly as they do in the pre-rut. They're Like Corey said, they're going from the places where they're focused on food to the places where they're focused on breeding. So in a very short period of time, their primary need goes from food to breeding. And if you think about where cows feed, that's where the bulls will be. And the cows feed in different areas than the bulls. Right now, you'll see them at the very, very top of the summer range. And when you're scouting all summer, you're gonna see them at the top of the summer range. Well, if the cows start slowly moving lower in the summer range, almost to the top of the transition range, those bulls are gonna move a long ways from where you've seen them in July. So that might explain part of why it's like, where'd they go? So. Yeah, a lot of times, you know, those bulls, people will focus on bulls on their trail camera all summer long, and then all of a sudden it's just a ghost town. And they hunt there for a week in the season, never see a track, never hear a bugle. Those bulls will move. So I, I really focus my scouting efforts on finding the cows and where that rutting area is going to be. So I look for lots of cows on my trail camera, and then in physical scouting, I'm looking for signs of previous ruts. So I'm looking for rubs, I'm looking for wallows, anything that's going to indicate they rutted here last year or previously, because they're typically going to rut in those same areas year after year. Great question. The question here was, he hunts uh, Eastern Oregon, and it's very open. Uh, the cow groups will have, you know, 40 or 50 cows, four to five bulls. How do you pull those bulls away? Because historically you've been a spot and stock archer, I'm assuming. Because if you said you're getting within 100 yards, if you're a rifle <laughs> hunter, I, I hope you're, you're close enough. Uh, but asking Corey, how do you pull those bulls away from the cows? Is that the right question? What, what week of, of the season are you typically hunting? Okay, so it's prime time to call, especially those bigger bulls. Uh, when you hunt in open country, the thing to keep in mind is when an elk gets to a point where he can see where the calls are coming from, he's not coming any closer if he doesn't see an elk. So there's two things to keep in mind when you're hunting like that. Number one, use the topography as much as you can. There's no, no trees around, so you can't hide in the brush or anything. They're going to be able to see there's an elk calling from right there. 
So if you're able to get just on the backside of a little roll, a little knoll, even if it's just 10 yards and they're 100 yards away, they've got to come to that ridge to see down off the backside to see where the calls are coming from. That can be helpful. Uh, if you're able to get a partner uh, to call for you, you're going to be, you know, now you're going to be 100 or 150 yards in front of the caller. So you're able to take advantage of that terrain. So that bull has to come to a certain point where you are before he can see where the caller is. The other thing that might work, that might be effective would be a decoy. And decoys in that country can be difficult. I like decoys in more broken timber. So you can flash a decoy out there and hide it. And the elk has to come through the timber looking for the decoy. If they see a decoy head pop up in the sagebrush and then disappear, they're going to be like, that's really odd. <laughs> you might get one to come to, you might get one to turn and run the other way. So I would probably try really hard to use the topography and get set up in areas where you can call that elk where he has to come to a certain point where you're going to get a shot before he can see where the calls are coming from. And then as a last resort, you might try a, a decoy in those situations. So, but you're, you've picked the right time. I mean, spot and stock works great that time of year. If they get in an area where they're bedded down and a bull goes off by himself to, you know, rake some sagebrush or to find a wallow or something, you might have a chance to slip in there. Or if they do set up in a, in a good place, spot and stock's probably going to be your first choice. And then once they get, you know, if you can't spot and stock there, maybe you can set up to call them away from the herd. So we got the Charlie Daniels of the turkey call here uh, saying, why am I not the Charlie Daniels of the elk call? Is that right? All right. So that's for you, Corey. I'm right. glad all these calling questions are here. I'm just sitting up here relaxing. Doesn't anybody have a question on marital advice or anything? That's that's kind of Randy's forte here. We got that yesterday a bunch. So yeah, the question on, uh, you're very experienced with turkey calls, turkey called a lot, mastered the diaphragm turkey call, but elk calls are a lot different. And why is that? So when you think about a turkey call, the the clucks and everything that a turkey does are very abrupt. And so a lot of times you're using a wider frame, you're using a double or a triple latex to get the popping sound in there of the turkey call. And you're slapping your tongue up against it pretty abruptly, getting that, you know, just individual sounds hitting off of that. When it comes to elk calls, you want to transition smoothly through all of the octaves and then drop off smoothly on it. And it's completely different. And so I found that, you know, a wider frame turkey call with two or three layers of latex is very effective and gives me what I need to be able to abruptly hit that latex and make the sound I want. But with an elk call, I go with a little bit narrower frame and a single lighter medium latex layer because that helps me transition through that. And it's completely different than a turkey call. Turkey calls are short breaths. You kind of pop, 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 pop on the diaphragm. And with an elk call, it's more you've got to control a long breath. So your diaphragm, you're, take, you're taking a deep breath, and then you're slowly forcing that air across your tongue on the latex and controlling it as it goes up with tongue pressure, and then you let off on tongue pressure and come down. So it's a completely different dynamic between the two calls, and the same call that works for a, for a turkey probably isn't the best call to use for an elk. So if you're trying your turkey calls, trying to bugle on them, that's probably the, the first thing that I would suggest changing is getting an actual elk diaphragm and then just work with tongue pressure uh, to just gradually go through that, that spectrum of different octave changes, starting with low tongue pressure, adding tongue pressure to get the high note, and then dropping it off. And again, it's going to be that deep breath and then slowly forcing that air across the latex instead of short bursts of air that a, that a turkey call would have. Too much immediately. It's got to be a gradual increase in tongue pressure. Yeah, and the thing to keep in mind, when you want to control the pitch, the, the sound that comes out of the diaphragm, 
you want to use tongue pressure, not air pressure. So I know a lot of people, when they, when they pick up a diaphragm the first time, they want to hit that high note. So the first thing they do is blow as hard as they can on that diaphragm. And that's the wrong way to do it because you're losing all your air. You're not going to have any consistency or control. So you want to use tongue pressure, very light air pressure to start with, and just get your tongue pressure. So the, higher, the harder you push with your tongue, the higher the note is, and then back down. From there, you'll find that you want to add a little air pressure to hold that high note and then drop off. But yeah, control everything consistent, smooth with tongue pressure. Thank you. Absolutely. I get, I, I, get to, I get to repeat that question because that one's for Randy. So the <laughs> question is that uh, he tends to overpack and he wants to know what the essential items are that he can put in his backpack to uh, make sure he has everything he needs but not be carrying too much weight. And uh, I'll turn that over to Randy, but I do want to make sure that you realize a 10-pound rock in your backpack is not necessary. And Randy carries those around a lot. Thanks to Corey. <laughs> are, are you rifle hunting or are you arch rifle hunting? Okay. Um, I, uh, I was one of those, so you, you said the question and you provided your commentary that was unnecessary, but uh, Corey and camera guys are good at putting 10 pound lava rocks in your pack in New Mexico. And, but, so don't do that would be the first answer. But I, I used to do the same thing. I'd way over pack. Uh, but I, for me, I try to think about, all right, what is the time of year I'm at? And what are the essentials for that time of year? Because I would have a tendency to more overpack in a late, like a winter or a November type hunt than I will in an earlier season hunt. Uh, I would sit down and I'm not one of those guys who on a backpack hunt, I cut my toothbrush handle off or anything like that. It's like, all right, what do I need as my basic essentials to give me comfort? And comfort is both the mental comfort that I'm going to be safe out here. And then if something goes south, I'm going to get home. And the comfort of what allows me to hunt harder and longer. And usually those come down to a basic essentials of a survival kit and a first aid kit, which for me is very minimal. Uh, I don't carry a lot of the stuff you see. I carry these Aqua Myra droplets that if I ran into a bad situation and I encountered water, I could get water that way. So... I'm probably not going to run into anything I can't handle from a survival standpoint with just this really little uh, kit that I have. Then it gets to, all right, how much optics do I need? Do I need to carry a spotting scope plus my binoc, my 8x42s I have around my chest and my 15x56s? And uh, I, I see people carry a lot of stuff they aren't going to use that day. There's nothing wrong with leaving something at camp or at the truck that day that you don't need. Uh, I would go out and even in years you may not have a tag or whatever, I would go out and experiment with that. In the summertime right now, I'm, I'm testing my pack. Of, all right, what new am I adding this year and is it worth it? I mean, I've had the benefit of doing it for 30 years and I've kind of sorted out what does or doesn't work and what's, you know, what, like a boat anchor that do, does me no good. Um, it, it's really a matter of trial and error for me. And, and having, uh, I always say knowledge is confidence, confidence is success. So if you have knowledge about the conditions and the uh, experiences you're going to have, you're, you're going to have confidence that you have your gear. A lot of times, I, at least for me, I would overpack because I didn't have confidence or if I backed it up even further, I really didn't have knowledge 
And so I'm out trying to replicate that all times a year. I use spring bear hunts to sort some of that out. I use summer pack trips, whatever. So I know that's a, a general question, but it really gets down to every piece of, do I really need this? You know, do, do I need four pounds of food with me today? Well, when I'm at home, I don't eat four pounds of food in two days. Why do I need four pounds of food in my pack? Do I need four liters of water? Can I get by with two and have some emergency backup system? So it's, that's how, how I approach it. That's very unscientific, but... Uh. Yeah, just, just to add to that, I, I make a list of what I need and then a list of what I want. And when, it, when you look at just the essentials, say I'm archery hunting in September, if I'm not bivy hunting, I'm coming back to a base camp every day, the list of things I need is pretty minimal. I need a license, I need an elk call, I need my weapon. Uh, I usually don't carry binoculars depending on the area we're hunting. I need a rangefinder. I need uh, food to get me through the day, which is pretty minimal because I'm eating breakfast before I go. I'm, I've got dinner waiting for me back there and I know I can make it at least 12 hours without food if I have to. So carrying as little food as I need to, but having enough to get by. And then I have a, a kill kit. So I carry you know, a knife, game bags, uh, an extra flashlight there, just in case flashlight runs out in my essentials kit. And then uh, I've got just uh, the, the very basics. I used to only carry like 16 ounces of water. And that's, a, that's not a good thing I've found. So I carry more water now, but water adds up fast. So I still don't overdo it. I don't carry a... a Hydration pack, typically, I usually carry probably 32 ounces of water and then capability to, to get more in the field if I need to. And really, when you look at it like that, those are the essentials. Sure, it'd be nice to have this or be nice to have a, a padded seat to sit on when I sit down to eat my trail mix. You know, I start weeding things like that out because I just, I don't need them. So the question is, during the rut, Randy, have you ever found yourself in the magic circle? And if so, how did you handle it? Uh, you know the old saying, uh, every once in a while, the blind squirrel finds a nut? That's kind of me finding that magic circle in the rut. You know, it's like I just stumbled into it. Uh, yeah, and it's, it's what we live for, right? It's, it, it is that time where it's like, whoa, this is it. Uh, I would say when I first started elk hunting, I didn't even realize that, oh, man, I'm in a special situation here. I've got bulls here and there, and I've got cows bedded nearby or whatever it might be that created that situation, and I screwed up every one of them, every, every single one of them. I had, I, yeah, I, I had a perfect batting average, uh, if, if you want to call screwing it up a batting average. Um, as you get to hunt more, you realize, oh, wow, this is, this is unique. This is, is special, and wow. I've handled it differently when I'm hunting with a partner versus when I'm hunting by myself. Uh, I've had to handle it differently a lot now that I usually have two camera guys following around with me. Uh, everyone's like, oh man, I'm glad I don't have two extra guys following me around. Uh, but uh, I, I still remember one time in, in New Mexico getting into that situation and it lasted about five or six hours. It was just unbelievable. And I screwed it up. But I didn't really screw it up. What happened is one of the smaller bulls came straight on, frontal shot at about 20 yards, and uh, just screamed at us. And like, you know, I'm here, I'm, I'm going to whoop you. And I didn't take the shot. And then when he moved back over with the group, they just started moving off, and then I screwed it up. Uh, I got excited. <laughs> I, when you hear that much bugling, you take for granted that they're not going to smell you. 
or they're not going to hear you or whatever. And what did I do? They're just over this little swale, like 70 yards over there. It's really thick, so I'm not worried about being spotted, but it's about, I don't know, two and three in the afternoon and the thermals are pretty steady except in this little shaded spot i'm like oh they're not going to smell me and it's only 10 yards across there i ruined the magical circle Uh, i created a stampede of of elk uh but sometimes you get it that's why we hunt right is for those excited times like that you you hope that once a season you end up like that and got excited and, and i messed it up and uh I'll let you chime in on some of that because you end up in more of those situations than I do. I thought the magic circle was referencing Lord of the Rings or Randy's nap time or something, but... I've uh, I've never seen Lord of the Rings, so I wouldn't even know what he's talking about. (laughs) No, it's a a special thing. And I think, you know, we hope to experience something like that. And you just have to to play it by ear, really, because every situation is different. Magic circle is different every single day and every every single different place. So I think, you know, just understanding, are the elk on the move? Is there is there chaos going on because there's a cow in estrus and the bulls are running around just bugling everywhere, trying to get, you know, it's hard to get their attention when there's a cow in estrus doing that. Or did two or three herds come together and the bulls are just wanting to fight each other to establish, you know, their herds again. You know, times like that are great to run in there in the middle of it and start bugling and, and cause a fight. So I think understanding each situation and, you know, it happens fast. It's dynamic. You can't just have a plan in your head and go and try that. You have to realize what's going on and then make the best decision there. But when I get in those situations, I'm usually pretty aggressive right away. And then when things kind of blow up, there's still little pockets of, of magic circle going on. And then you can start honing in a little bit and taking a little bit more time on it. But when you get in that situation, the last thing you want to do is sit back and just wait for something to happen. You can still make things happen. So. I, I did learn from that mistake I made in New Mexico because a few years later in Montana, uh, it's September 10th and a full moon. So that this hunt is why I have zero concern about a full moon period. And Corey's going to throw a water bottle at me for just saying that. So it's mid-afternoon and the magical circle's going on about 250 yards across from us on a little timbered ridge of private land and we're over on the public. And I knew that if I pushed the issue and the wind's bad, we're screwed. So I waited and I waited and Troy, the camera guy's like, how long are we gonna sit here? However long it takes for that magical circle to slowly come over here to the public land. And anyone who's ever watched that episode, it's grainy footage because we had to wait until that last little minute and pretty soon here comes my best archery bull that I've ever taken walking right out here at 20 yards and he had no idea and we'd waited for the perfect wind we'd waited for everything else and there's bulls bugling everywhere and somehow i regained my composure and i hit that bull i (laughs) i had to look at troy to say did i hit him i heard a crack but i was shaking so bad i was (laughs) thought there's like a 50 percent chance i could have missed this thing (laughs) but so i i learned from that experience and and like Corey said, it's, it's so dynamic, you got to kind of play it by ear. Before we get to the next question, we're going to jump and take one from Instagram here. Do we have a question, Daniel? So the question from Instagram Live is, if we could pick one state to hunt early season archery, what, what state would it be and why? New Mexico. That'd be the last state I picked because I hunted there with Randy early season one time. 
It's, those elk in, in New Mexico, when they get out in the grasslands, they aren't moving. If they find a piece of shade, they're staying there. And uh, for me, that early season hot weather stuff, uh, they, they're somewhat predictable based on the, the arc of the sun during the day. That's just my experience of hunting them in the grasslands. Because he did say early season spot and stock. No, I think just early season archery. Oh, oh well, Corey's going to call him. I'm not going to. I'm going to spot and stock him. Uh, so send me to New Mexico. Uh, and I just love the consistency of their daily pattern. You can almost predict when there's very small, very small parts of shade, they're going to be using one of those very small parts of shade in their daily pattern of going to water, come back to bed, feeding along the way, getting up, going back to water. My experience has been there they're pretty predictable and i will give randy credit because we did end up spotting and stalking the bull that i shot in new mexico and he knew what he was doing there i, I tried for seven days to call in an elk and finally randy said can we just try spotting and stalking out in the grasslands and i gave in and it worked so for me though early season archery uh there's a lot of options and fortunately we have a lot of public land and a lot of over-the-counter opportunities where we can just go and buy a tag we've got colorado we've got oregon we've got uh, idaho and then you know places like montana and wyoming that you can get a general tag as a non-resident with zero one two points so a lot of opportunity that we can can bank on for that I think my favorite, if I had to choose, would be between Idaho and Wyoming. I live in Idaho, so you know I've got an advantage there. It's uh, it's home state, so I'd probably pick Idaho, uh, but Wyoming wouldn't be too far behind. And it's just because my style of calling, being aggressive, especially early season, September 5th to the 15th, both of those states lend themselves to uh, a lot of action and a lot of activity when it comes to calling. So, great question. All right, back over here. So the question is, you know, a high desert or a water dependent state like Utah, where you have, you know, last year, a very dry year, this year, a very wet year. How does that affect your scouting as well as how does that change your hunting throughout the hunt as weather maybe changes or as uh, the, the drought increases or decreases? So Randy has a lot more experience hunting those desert states of New Mexico, Arizona, Utah, Nevada than I do. So I'll let him take that one. Well, uh, understand that the, my experience isn't necessarily success. It's mostly tr failure and trying to learn from that. So <laughs> I might have hunted there more, but I can't, I don't want to promise I've had all that much more success. But, you know, in a very wet year like this, and you, you use Utah as an example, but you could use Nevada, you could use parts of Wyoming, parts of Western Colorado, the, the more lower, like Great Basin kind of stuff. Uh, it's very green here right now compared to other times when I've been through this part of Utah. So you're going to have way more availability of two critical components, food and water. So in a dry year, you're going to have concentrations of elk in areas. And when you find the concentrations, the numbers are going to be much higher. Now they're going to be more dispersed because what they need is more dispersed across the landscape. So in a situation like this, I would save my scouting days for just before my hunt. And I don't care if that's an archery hunt or if that's a rifle hunt, because the likelihood is you could have a really green condition like this in July and August. 
And if you get no moisture between now and then, you might see elk dispersed over here and dispersed over there. But if you get a dry cycle for the next six to eight weeks, you're going to end up with a situation where elk are not dispersed like they are right now. So for me, the relevance of my scouting time, the closer it is to my hunting season, the more valuable that information is to what I'm doing. So uh, I, that's kind of a, a general approach that I make to it. But a dry year like this is going to allow, whether it's elk or mule deer, it's going to allow them to disperse in a lot of places where normally you don't see them. But one, one thing Corey mentioned earlier that I hope people picked up on is even in a wet year like this, the rut, if you're archery hunting, for whatever reason, these elk go to the same places to rut every year. And there might be five ridges that all look the same, but ridge number two is the one that has all the rubs. And you go there on September 10th, and for whatever region, ridges one, three, four, and five don't have any elk. And I can't explain it. It's, it's just the elk. There's something there that the elk like that they select that. So I, I, it, whether it's a, a, a wet year or a dry year, if you're archery hunting, in, in the rut that is another thing that is a scouting information that's not going to change a lot between scouting in july and your season in september nothing to add there this is uh, i'm going to read all eight questions he just <laughs> asked if i can remember them all uh it's about Corey, you know hiking the ridge in the morning doing locating bugles but you got the heavy thermals uh, the heavy air going down how do you handle that uh, does it change whether it's open country or timbered country? And then if the wind isn't quite perfect, do you try to side hill or somehow go after them and not wait for the wind, wind to be perfect? Did I cover them all? Oh, yeah. Also, how far does your scent travel in timbered country? Could you repeat the questions again? <laughs> <laughs> so... Uh, the way we hunt, we typically hunt from a base camp. We're leaving uh, either a trailhead, base camp, something before daylight. We're hiking up a ridge. And the thermals are coming down. The thermals are in our face. That's typically when the elk are moving to with the thermals coming down. So we're typically following elk up the mountain or paralleling them. Uh, we might get on a, a ridge that converges with another ridge, and now we have a new basin down in there to call into. But for the most part, as we're going up that ridge, as we call... The call's broadcasting up ahead of us a little bit, out alongside of us, as well as back to where we've been. For the most part, I'm not as worried about where we've been. And that's where the thermals are going to actually be going, because if I've done it right, I've bugled from down below up into that, and a bull's already answered. If he hasn't answered by the time I get up a little higher on the ridge where the thermals are now dropping into that draw, hopefully he's he's heard my bugle, or I know that there's not an elk there. So I use the the ridge to travel up, but I'm still trying to bugle more up ahead of me, up into a basin, uh, far enough away that I can make a, str a strategic play to get into position before the wind actually affects the elk. So I do travel up the ridge. Once the wind switches, I'm up higher, I'm above the elk. Now I'm traveling across the ridge top, bugling down into those draws. And then as it switches in the evening, we're coming back down a ridge, trying to parallel the elk as they're going down to their feeding area for the night. So playing the thermals that way, trying to, to understand how the elk are using the thermals to move, and then we're moving the same way. Once we do get a bugle, say we're on a ridge and a bull answers down in a basin below us, if the thermals are going down, typically we're going to have a finger ridge or something separating us and the elk, so we can be strategic. We can come up with a plan that's going to allow us to move in on the elk without blowing them out. Sometimes, though, you step up on a ridge and bugle, and 
100 yards down below you, a bull answers, the winds are going, you know, that way and it's over right there. So um, thermals are everything in hunting elk. You've got to prepare for it. You've got to plan for how you're going to approach an area based on the thermals. And then once you get a response, you definitely have to, to pay attention to those thermals. Uh, as far as maybe one thing I'll add in there that probably was, was maybe asked or something uh, in that question you can't control the wind. The wind is going to do what it's doing, but there are some things you can do to uh, utilize the wind to your favor or minimize the negative effects of the wind or the thermals. And if I can get on the same level as the elk, so elevation-wise, if I'm moving across to an elk, thermals are usually moving up or down the mountain. So we've got a, a thermal that's moving down in the morning, moving up in the afternoon, moving back down in the evening. If I can get perpendicular to that wind pattern, and move across, if it does switch, if there's a swirl or something, it usually switches 180 degrees. So in the morning, if the thermals are coming down, if I'm moving side hill across and it switches, the sun hits that hillside and the thermals all of a sudden switch and move up, if the elk's over here, he's still not gonna smell me. So I always try to get on that same level as the elk to move in and minimize the effects of the thermals. And then the last question, how far will thermals carry in timbered country? Uh, you know, it, you've got all sorts of draws and you've got an open hillside and you've got shady hillside, north faces and everything. So the thermals are just continually doing this. And as they get farther away, they're a lot more diluted and not as, as much of an effect. But I have sat on a hillside uh, in open country and glassed elk from three quarters of a mile away and saw them lift their heads and look up and bark and take off across the hillside, knowing there was nobody else in there. So I don't even take a chance on distance. If the wind's moving in that direction, I've got to find a way to get completely around and get it in my favor. So, great questions. I'm going to let you repeat the question, Corey, because you're intimately familiar with your line of calls. <laughs> so I get to repeat the question and pass it to you? Is that what you're saying? No, you okay. get to do both. I'm going to take a nap here. So the question is, uh, diaphragm calls, uh, he has a really small mouth and has tried like the, the mini master, which is made for children, women with small mouths, uh, with a smaller frame, smaller tape. Uh, it seems a little too small. And then you've, you've tried the all-star, which also has a small frame, but a bigger tape. And you feel it's a little too big, so you've trimmed it and still are having a little troubles with it. So the question is, are there modifications you can make to the diaphragm or maybe a different diaphragm? Or is there an external call that, that would work as a second replacement there. So there, there's a lot going on with the diaphragm call. You know, you look at it and you think, well, it's green, that one should work good. But in the, in the construction of a diaphragm call, you've got the latex, which actually is what makes the sound. And so you've got thickness of latex and you've got stretch on the latex, which really affect the sound that you're able to produce, the range of sounds, the, uh, the, the ease of usability of it, all of those things. Then you've got the frame and the frame closes over the latex and that's what holds the latex in place. And the wider you get or the narrower you get, again, is gonna change the tone. It's gonna change the, the variation of sounds you make. And then lastly, you've got the tape and it's you know the tape that goes on there that kind of gives it structure. So you can put it in your mouth. You don't have just a little piece of metal with latex in there moving all over. So. I think that what you're talking about is the, the tape on the call feels too wide in your mouth. Is that correct? It's the frame. Okay, so is the frame hitting on your teeth then? Okay, so the frame's hitting on your teeth and you aren't able to get it seated up in the roof of your mouth there. Okay, so you do have a very narrow palate if, if the... So the mini, the frame on the mini and the frame on the all-star or the champ or the contender, any of those in the Elk 101 line should be the same frame. 
So those should fit the same. They're just going to have wider tape. So if the All-Star fits up in there a little better, but the, you've tried trimming it a little bit, I like to leave the tape wide. And the reason for that is it helps seal the air. So as you're blowing air across the latex, if, if the tape's too narrow, you're going to get a lot of air escaping outside of the, of the latex. And you aren't going to be able to control it. You aren't going to be able to hold the high note as long so that the tape can really help hold that there, hold that air in there and channel it. So I wouldn't recommend trimming tape necessarily if it's a matter of the frame and you just can't get a frame to seat up in there. I'm guessing it'll sit on one side of your teeth and be up in the palate on the other side. And so it's just sitting you know, crooked and all that there. That makes it really hard to, to call with. So uh, frame-wise, there's not much you can do. You've, you've tried the smallest frames. Um, I'd, I'd like to work with you afterwards and just take a look and see what, what we can do. But when it comes to external diaphragms, the conqueror mouthpiece uh, basically takes the same frame, puts it in a mouthpiece, flips it around, and all you have to do is blow on it from the outside. So you can use your tongue or your lip the same, get a lot of control with it. You can still chuckle with it and everything. And uh, I can show you that afterwards as well. So Randy and I will be over at the Rocky Mountain Hunting Calls booth from 3 to 4 today, and probably there a few minutes early. If you were able to show up a few minutes early, I'd love to to talk more on that, so is that helpful? Excellent. So the question is specifically referencing Idaho, but there's several Western states that have the same uh, special situation that you referred to, and, and that being wolves. Uh, wolves have changed how elk respond specifically, and, and especially, so how do you handle uh, hunting in a wolf-heavy area if you're wanting to call in elk? I live in Montana. <laughs> Uh, we got our share of wolves also. We, we don't have them quite to the infestation that you have in Idaho. Uh, but I, Corey and I will probably have some differences here. One of the things what we have in Montana that we've been dealing with, that they've never disappeared, were grizzly bears that are uh, a lot of predation on, on elk with grizzly bears. And I've really not noticed in Montana a huge difference in elk behavior. I've noticed a big difference in elk patterns of where, do they, where they disperse and what they do. But I have found that even where there's wolf sign, uh, the elk are still being elk. So I, I can only say that as my Montana experience. I've not hunted Idaho. So I'm going to point to my left here and, and throw all that on the shoulders of the guy who hunts in the wolf country of Idaho. And, and I do. I live in the epicenter of wolf country. And, you know, we have... We had a wolf in our driveway this winter as we were leaving for spring break. I shot a wolf last winter uh, within a couple miles of our house. So we live and, and deal with that very heavily. Uh, I hunted Arizona in 2005 for the first time. And it was really before wolves had gotten a stronghold in Idaho. They were there and we'd seen them since uh, 98, 99, somewhere in there. But going to Arizona, it made me realize the differences in hunting a heavy predator area versus an area like Arizona where they have coyotes and mini wolves, or I don't remember what they call those, the Mexican gray wolves, I think, that really don't affect elk like, like the wolves we have. So. The calling in Arizona was off the charts. The elk bugle continuously. They bugle all day. And you get in Idaho, and they're more, uh, they pay attention to when and how they bugle. And if there are wolves in the area, the elk have learned that they're just a dinner bell when they bugle. And so getting a response out of an elk is a lot harder. Uh, the days of having an elk just bugle his head off all day because he's, you know, got a cow in estrus there in some of those areas is over. But with that being said, we've found that Wolves travel a lot. They're very mobile. They'll hit a drainage one day. The next day, they're five miles away looking for elk in another drainage. 
And if they get into an area where there are a lot of elk and the wolves start hunting there, an elk five miles away is going to act completely different than the elk in the drainage where the wolves are. So we've been very mobile as well and finding that as we move and try to stay ahead of the wolves or find areas where the wolves aren't actively hunting elk, uh, elk still act like elk much less than they did, but they still act like elk. And so we just, we, we were in an area, I'll give you an example. We had an area where there's seven bulls on uh, the first weekend of archery season in Idaho. We stepped in there, I let out a bugle, and I couldn't even get an elk to lift its head and look at me, including one that was just 250 yards away. And we tried everything we could. Finally, one down below us was feeding his way up the draw with his cows, and he just let out a, and that's all we got out of him. And we got up on the ridge line following that bull, and there's wolf tracks, fresh wolf tracks all over there. So we hunted the rest of that day, never heard another bugle, couldn't even do anything other than bump elk. We got in the truck that evening, drove down the road about eight miles, hit another drainage on the other side of the canyon, and hunted up it, and the elk were screaming their heads off. And we came back to that initial drainage a week later, five or six days later, and the elk in there were bugling like crazy. So the wolves had moved out, the elk had picked up, but as soon as wolves are in the area, they just clam up. And so I think being mobile is the key, finding those areas where the wolves aren't active and then getting in close. That bull that let out the little growl, he was 80 yards away before he felt comfortable enough to let out just a, a low growl. But they're still, the elk still rut. The elk still chase cows, they still breed. They do all the things elk do, they just have to do it a lot more carefully now. So the question is, uh, you hunt where there are a lot of sheep, domestic sheep, and you've always been told not to hunt deer and elk where there are domestic sheep and you want to know our opinion. I guess my question back is, have you been successful in that area? I've, uh, I have seen, uh, just like the passing by, but a lot of times when I hunt with my dad, it's like, oh, she, there's sheep been here, let's just go to this different drop. We don't need to go try this canyon, per se, because the sheep have been in there. Okay. I'll, I'll let you take a stab and then I'll do the same, but I think our answer is going to be the same. Uh, I, I, your experience of struggling to find animals where domestic sheep have come through mirrors mine. I, I've really struggled when, and, and I will call the BLM, usually this is BLM, sometimes it's Forest Service, but like I'm, I have a Nevada tag this year. Uh, I'm, one of my calls is to the BLM to say, when are these sheep on the allotments? Because if they're on this allotment in an area where I'm hunting, I'm going somewhere else. And that's just based on my experience of seeing how a lot of times when domestic sheep come through, oh, we got a helicopter coming <laughs> here. I, maybe the president is arriving via Marine One or something, or Marine Two, whatever the new one is. But uh, anyhow, uh, if you've ever been there and seen when domestic sheep come through, it is nothing but fine powder usually when they're done. Anything that's low enough for them to reach has probably been consumed. Uh, and I, I, I understand that the landscape's multiple use, and these are allotments that are, you know, they're, they're permitted to, to do what they do. Uh, I can't change that, so I change my hunting. Uh, and I... Just whether it's elk or whether it's deer, I will avoid where domestic sheep have been. Now, cattle, I've not had nearly the displacement experience, the experience of displacement from domestic cattle as I have from domestic sheep. Yeah, that'd be my answer too. And I, I guess, you know, the, like Randy said, it's multi-use land and we share it with everyone and, and the sheep grazers have an effect on, on hunting, in my opinion. Um, 
sheep will eat the grass right down to the dirt and leave nothing. Cattle will, will eat the, the top tender parts and move on and the elk can still come and eat the bases of the grasses and so there's still feed there. The other thing to keep in mind is if you have 2,500 sheep bunched up moving through an area, they're loud. They make noise. The dogs that are running around there barking and elk just don't like that pressure. They're going to move off away from that. And I typically don't find them even near where the sheep have been. So if I get into an area where there's sheep, I'm typically going around somewhere else to, to get away from it. So the question is, and so now you see that I'm deferring to Corey on the front end. <laughs> if you have the elk coming towards you but is not in your range, what tactics do you use to get him to keep coming and get within range? And I, are you talking archery? Because if it's rifle, it, rifle, it's a little easier answer. Uh, so, I'll, archery, okay. So there you go, Corey. How are you going to bring them in closer? So that's the that's the hard part when you're calling elk is once they can see where you're calling from. If they're coming towards you and say they get to 120 yards and they can see right where that sound's coming from, they're going to stop there and wait until they see an elk to come any closer. They're using their sense of sight to keep them safe. If they can't see that, they're gonna use their sense of smell, so they're gonna circle down below you sometimes. So the best thing you can do in that situation is have two people, have one caller and one shooter, because when your caller's back behind, that elk's gonna have to come in even closer to the caller before you can see where the sound's coming from. So you as the shooter set up out in front are gonna have an opportunity to get a shot, hopefully before that elk stalls, and hopefully he comes into your shooting range. So having a caller behind you is, is going to be the key. If you're a solo hunter, which I know a lot of people like solo hunting, and, and that's the biggest question of the elk always hang up at 80 to 100 yards, they're always coming in frontal, I can't get a shot, what do you do? You have to become a ventriloquist, and that's really what it's about is fooling that elk to have to come in farther into the setup before he realizes you're right there or making him think that he's got to come you know, another 60 yards to get visual. So you can do that by casting your bugles or your cow calls back behind you, and when you turn a bugle tube around and, and call from right behind you, that can throw that sound another 30 or 40 yards and make the bull come in. The other thing that's important is your setup. And you've got to set up in an area where that bull has to get within 30 or 40 yards of you to be able to get a visual on where the call's coming from. So that, that would be my two suggestions, hunt with a partner or uh, make sure that the bull has to come in really close before he gets that visual. I have nothing to add. So the question is, if you're packing into the backcountry with horses, uh, couple of questions. Anything you need to know as a beginner packing with horses and then uh, how much can a can an elk actually or how much can a horse actually carry in or haul out? I can answer that question because I know nothing about horses. Uh, <laughs> my, my view of horses is you don't need horses if you have a friend who has some. Uh, kind of like hunting dogs and fishing boats, right? You don't need one if you got a friend who has one. That's what your brother-in-law is for. Uh, <laughs> But I, I really don't know the answer to that because I'm, as people know, I've become kind of fond of llamas. Uh, and so I could answer some questions to that. But I, you said you had horses at one time, Corey. No, my family had horses and I just had to put up the hay for them. So a question, I guess, back to you. Do you have horses or are you looking at buying horses or is this, uh, I guess, where's, where's the question coming from there? Gotcha. So to, to clarify the question, she has horses and uses, you know, for rodeo, team roping, all of that. Her husband is saying, you know, can we use the horses to hunt off of? And you're thinking, why would we go back into the backcountry on our feet when I have horses here? So uh, wait, wait, before you answer, is this a marital advice question? 
<laughs> He's nodding his head yes that this is a marital advice question. Uh, he says his feet are fine, so we'll let you go yeah, from there, Corey. I, I'm kind of the same. I, as many rodeos as I've been involved in with horses, I've decided to just hike anywhere I need to go. And so, you know, you've, you've got experience with horses. You ride horses, you're comfortable on, on taking them. I think riding them into the backcountry, you're going to be just fine. When it comes to packing, it is a, a whole different animal. So a horse, I feel, needs to be comfortable with packing and trained for packing, not just, you know, team rope. A team roping horse is not a packing horse necessarily, but it could be. So I think... Uh, I don't know. I don't have any real good advice to offer there other than a horse can pack uh, a decent amount of weight. And if they're comfortable packing weight, uh, there's no reason not to utilize them. In Montana, everybody who thinks that, and I'm, I wasn't one of those people. Okay, I came from a logging family where we drove around in skitters and stuff like that. So I don't own any horses. But I know a lot of people who own horses, and those who use them in the mountains with great regularity are on a first-name basis with an orthopedic surgeon. <laughs> and that's why I'm with your husband. I'm walking. Nothing personal. This uh, I, lack of experience of horses and observing all of my friends who have horses eventually being on crutches and stuff like that. So. Now, the people who have good pack stock are sitting out there shaking their head going, you guys are fools for not utilizing it. So <laughs> yeah. I think it's a matter of experience and where you have experience with horses, if nothing else, lead them in there with your camp on there, and I'm sure they can handle that. But definitely don't go to the trailhead and put a pack saddle on them the first time and expect them to go. Definitely make sure they're ready. So how about a question from Instagram? Do we have another question, Daniel, from Instagram? So the question from Instagram Live is, what techniques do we use to keep meat from spoiling in the backcountry? So we're assuming probably archery season, early season type hunts where you're back in several miles. What, what do we use to make sure the meat stays good? Yeah, that's, that's a really important question because for me, the essence of why I hunt is for meat and for food. And you'll even get some of these stretches in October where it gets up in the 80s. I was like, man, I'm worried about this meat spoiling. Uh, for me, it's about getting the animal as cooled off as you can, as quickly as you can. Uh, it's about shade. It's also about wind, and it's about what game bag you use. And I'm a big fan of synthetic game bags. And the reason being is that if I'm in a place where I know I'm going to have to leave this there for two or three days, and I'm able to find adequate shade, and I'm able to find a windy place where, you know, just off the slope of a ridge or on the slope of a ridge with, the, I know the wind's cutting through there, I know that I'm going to be able to leave that in some sort of uh, game bag that's synthetic that will allow evaporation to happen. It's not going to absorb water. Also, you get some of these cheesecloth game bags, and if you've ever put a full elk quarter in a cheesecloth game bag and hung it, pretty soon the gaps in the cheesecloth are about a half inch by a half inch. And what does the fly do when they land on that meat? They use their tail and they impregnate eggs in your meat, and that's where you start getting spoilage and other stuff. You'll get spoilage from bacteria as a result of moisture and heat. Synthetic game bags take care of so much of that. One other thing, if it is super, super hot, and say you're in a place that has a creek nearby or a water source nearby, evaporation can drop water temperature or drop air temperatures five to 10 degrees. So if you can build some sort of frame over the top of where you're going to hang that and build that frame over a flowing creek or something, I mean, it doesn't need to be much of a creek. 
And if you do have a tarp that you can put shade on it, you're gonna get another five to 10 degrees lower temperature, even in the middle of the day. Uh, we've, ha we've had meat hang in our camp for three to four days and it was just fine. And it's, it, to me, it's all about shade and wind and, and one, getting it cool because at night in, the, in most of the West, your temperatures are gonna get down in the 40s you know, even a high 40s. Well, there's not much spoilage is gonna occur if you can keep that meat temperature low. Uh, and by that, I mean in the 40s. And yeah, it's gonna raise a little bit during the day, but you'll be surprised if you take care of it properly, how long you can keep meat in a camp with shade and wind and lack of moisture. Yeah, and just to add to that, you know, there's always the debate, do you leave the bone in or do you bone the meat out? And I think if I'm in the back country and I'm gonna leave that meat for three or four days, I'm leaving the bone in. And the reason why is when you bone all that meat out and then you stuff it in a game bag and hang it there, that's, it's just a big insulation ball and the middle of that meat is not going to cool very quickly. So the thing to do is, if it's warm out, that hind quarter especially, when, when a meat sours on the bone, it sours from the bone. That's where the massive heat is, it can't escape. So all I do is take my knife and run it right down the bone and just open that up. So all the heat can come pouring out from the bone, let that cool and within 15 or 20 minutes, you can put your hand on it and feel it's noticeably cool to the touch. So leave it on the bone, but open it up so the, the heat from the bone can come out. That's really important. And then once you hang it in the game bags, uh, keep it in the shade, like Randy said, and we've had no trouble keeping, you know, even when we're hunting, it gets up into the high 70s, low 80s during the day, getting down into the, the upper 40s, low 50s at night. If we can keep that meat in the shade along a creek somewhere and get it opened up, that first two hours is the critical part. Get the hide off the elk as quickly as possible, get that meat opened up from the bone so that the heat can come out and get it in the shade and it's gonna be fine for a handful of days, no problem. Yeah, and to, to add to Corey's point, I very seldom will bone an elk that I know is gonna hang very long. If it's gonna hang overnight or for two days, I'm leaving bone in, I'm gonna do what he said, but then when it comes time to get out of there, I might pull it out of that game bag and then I'll bone it. But while it's hanging, I don't want this great big blob of meat that has no airflow, no convection to get that heat out of there. So the question is full moon, New Mexico, uh, early season archery opens on the 5th, or the quarter moon's on the 5th, and then the full moon is 13th or 14th this year. So yeah, 13th. Uh, so will that affect hunting New Mexico early archery? Randy said early archery New Mexico is your favorite place to go, so I'll let you take that one. I'd go the whole season if I can. I, I don't worry about moon phase. And I know some people, are, and probably this guy to, over to the side of me is like, wait a second here. Uh, and when you do what we do, we go from one trip to the next trip to the next trip, and we, we can't plan gaps in the uh, moon phase. We have no noticeable difference of elk activity between full moon, new moon, half moon, quarter moon, whatever. Uh, but what you do have in that early September period is heat like high daytime temperatures. That, in my experience, will force the elk to be way more, if you want to call it nocturnal, than moon phase. And I have no doubt that the elk do in some have some response in their daily patterns to moon phases. I'm not discounting that. But if you think about the logic of, can elk say, oh, we're not gonna breed right now because it's a full moon? that you think about biologically what they have to do, they have to have this spike of 
the calves drop in late May, early June as a predation effect. So they, they have these big pulses. That's part of how they've evolved to reduce the effect predators can have on that calf crop. So they have a certain gestation period, you roll that back, they don't say, well, you know, it's a full moon on September 12th, so we're just gonna shut it down here for a week. No, that, that doesn't happen. I don't discount that some daily patterns of how they do it are affected by moon phase. There's, like in fishing, there's probably times when, hey, it's a little better at two in the afternoon for some reason that, that we don't know. But as far as what I would do there, I'd go and hunt the whole season I can because those early archery seasons in, in New, uh, New Mexico are September 1st through the 14th. Is that when yours is? Yeah. And so the risk of running into a very hot temperature period is high. I had a, a tag in New Mexico last year, or same dates. It was in the high 80s for five of our seven days. And elk just are not going to do anything during the daytime hours because thermal regulation requires a lot of energy, even when it's hot. And so that's pro in my mind, that's probably a bigger risk than the moon phase. And I would move my hunt as late as I could in my season knowing that I could still hit a, late, a, a hot phase late in the season, but it lowers my percentages of, of running into that situation. Now you're going to hear a completely different opinion about moon phases. <laughs> Not completely different, but a, a different angle maybe. Uh, in states like Idaho, Wyoming, Montana, I don't think the moon has near the effect it does in the desert states, and I, would, I wouldn't hesitate to hunt on a full moon if I had to. If I could choose... I'd probably try not to, but I think there's a couple combinations. Heat, Randy mentioned heat. If you get heat and a full moon at the same time, that's tough. The elk are just going to be bedding down at daylight, and you aren't going to get much activity during the day, especially in places like New Mexico, Arizona, Nevada. Uh, the one thing to keep in mind is the rut, and the estrus cycle of the cows is really triggered by the daylight that enters the cow's pupil. So. We, I think the fall equinox is September 21st this year, somewhere right in there. That's the day when the daylight hours equal the nighttime hours. It's equal night, equal day. That's what triggers the cow estrus. And so the estrus is usually going to kick off within five or seven days of the fall equinox. Now, if you get a full moon right during that time, that could be putting more light into the pupil of the cows and it might make the rut kick in another four, five, six days later. And we'll see that. We saw that when Randy and I hunted New Mexico. It was a full moon. It was hot. There were people everywhere. And we were hunting during the fall equinox. And the elk just weren't kicked into the peak rut yet. Uh, with your season, I don't think you have to worry about the peak rut as much. And so it's not as big of a factor from that standpoint. You're going to have heat to contend with. And the other thing to keep in mind is every day of that hunt, the bugling action is going to increase. The elk are going to be gearing up more for the peak rut. And so each day that goes by is going to be better for bugling. So if calling is your primary tactic you want to employ, I would definitely focus on the latter part of that season and not worry quite as much about the moon's effect on what's going on right there. So Chad, the guy in charge of this operation, came up here and gave us the index finger. It's better than the other finger he yeah, usually gives us. Yeah, yeah. And that means one more question. So we got the guy with the microphone here who gets to be the last question. So the question is, in the peak rut, you're trying to get in on the herd bull, and you have a lot of satellite bulls in the timber that kind of slow you down from accomplishing your objective. Is and did you say here in Utah? And you're hunting peak rut, so are you talking rifle archery? Okay. Oh, rifle? Oh, 
Which can be a problem when you have satellite bulls continually coming into calls and you're weeding through them trying to get to the herd bull. So the question is, how can you get to the herd bull and weed through all the satellite bulls? How to get past them? Yeah, I, I just, if I had a <laughs> rifle, I'd just wade right past them. Because a lot of times they'll bump off to the side. And I, if I still had the wind in my favor and I knew that the bigger part of the herd with the herd bull in front of me was not going to smell me, I wouldn't worry about bumping some satellite bulls out of my way if I had a rifle. I would keep the wind in my face and I'd just keep closing the gap, closing the gap, and I'd just look at those smaller bulls and say, get out of the way, I got work to do here. But uh, that's an oversimplification. But there's times where we've had tags in early October in Wyoming uh, where we've had the same situation where it's still the, the rut period. Uh, and it's like, you know what, we can bump this one and... Usually, if, if you got a satellite bull that's 100 yards away in thick timber and you bump it and the herd and the cows have not smelled you, they're not going to just take off running. Now, if they've smelled you, the, the game's over. Yeah, so I, I guess you're hunting heavy timber, so are you calling? Yeah, so you're calling. So you hear a bugle, you don't know how big it is. You set up, comes in, it's a raghorn and you've got to get up. So you're spending most of your morning calling in five or six bulls, wading through the raghorns, trying to get to the big bull, because the raghorns are probably going to be more responsive to calling during that peak rut. They're getting kicked out of the herd. They're getting fought off. They hear some calling going on. They're going to go in and take a chance that they can find a cow there. The herd bull is staying with the cows, which are moving typically in the morning, going to the bedding area. So you're spending all morning wading through satellite bulls who are receptive to calling while well, the herd bull stuck with the cows and then they go bed down and go quiet and you've wasted a morning. So uh, I think, you know, in a heavy timber country, it's a matter of knowing it, knowing the bulls that are in there. If you know there's a herd bull in there, like Randy said, don't spend a lot of time calling, especially with a rifle. You don't have to set up and have perfect shooting lanes. You know, if you, if you have a bull out there, feel free to be aggressive and walk in on it. And once you get within 100 yards or something, maybe stand next to the tree and call and try to get it to come to you, but be a lot more aggressive and going in there uh, and not wait each setup and, and you know spend 20 or 30 minutes calling in a bull when you can aggressively go towards it and get a shot with the rifle. So are you, are you an archery hunter also? So that, that archery mindset is I've got to set up, I've got to get everything perfect and call the bull into my setup to, to get a shot. When you're hunting the peak route with a rifle, you don't have to, to do that. You can be a lot more aggressive. All you need is five or 10 seconds of that bull with inside of you and, and you get a shot. So I would definitely do what Randy said, blow, blow through them. Once you get visual on them, don't worry about bumping them. They aren't gonna go back and alert the herd. There's danger as long as you have the wind in your favor. Keep going and pushing on until you get into the herd. I, I'd, I'd add one more thing to that. And in the peak rut, once the herd bull has established his dominance, if you ever watch their behaviors, they are pushing the herds of cows, trailing along, and as a general rule, the satellites and spikes and raghorns are off to the side or, or trailing behind. By about 10 o'clock in the morning, that bull will go, and that group of cows and that herd bull will bed. And a lot of times you'll hear them bugling from their bed. And then uh, I've seen it way too many times to discount this as a strategy is about noon, one, two in the afternoon, at least in the arid states and, and when it's hot and they have to go in water, that herd bull will get up silently and solo and go in and water in the middle of the day. And then he will silently 
come back and bed with his cows. So if for some reason the wind's not allowed you to do what you need to do, but you know where they're bedded, don't give up on the idea of setting up on the periphery and taking advantage of the fact that that bull likely, if he's really active and it's warm, he has to water multiple times a day. Just the water he might get in the morning before they head to bed or in the evening, a lot of times is not enough. And he has to expose himself to danger by going and watering at midday. And that could be another possibility of where you could get in. That and calling. Don't discount calling in the middle of the day during that peak rut. Those herd bulls will be very... The cows are set up there. They're very territorial and protective, and you can get in there and challenge a herd bull a lot and get him to come in and, and chase you off. So well, I think we need to wrap it. A, a big thank you to Gerber and Rocky Mountain Hunting Calls for providing the, the gear for the questions. Thanks to all of you for coming out and uh, being here and answering the questions. Randy and I will be at the Rocky Mountain Hunting Calls booth at 3 o'clock, and if you've got more questions or want to come by, we'd be happy to shake your hand and talk elk hunting, and then we'll be at the Gerber booth from 4.15 to 5.15. Thank you.